This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. The legends are true! But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny! Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Thursday, March 9th, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we are going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. Jacob, how are you? You're coming to us from a new location. Yes, I moved into a new house after a year of waiting and a year of literally everything that could have gone wrong going wrong. Just, and this was an incredibly stressful time for you, I know. Yeah, I, Ben knows more than I will share on this podcast. But uh, make a mental list of things that can go wrong when you're trying to move to a new house. And it happened. I promise you it happened. All that and worse. Um, I have a lot more gray all over my body than I did a year ago. <laughs> I walked it up entirely to this move. So, I mean, I hope the, the process was worth it. I hope you're enjoying the new place immediately and it's not like instantly falling apart. Yeah, I mean, if you go on my Twitter feed, you'll see some photos I posted of my new game slash media area, which I'm still in the process of finishing. About I, all my life, I've wanted you know a very large space where people can play board games and watch movies, like just one large room. And like half of our upstairs space is now one large room where we have a mounted TV and board game walls. And my wife gave me permission to just do whatever I want with the area. And it's busy and, and chaotic in all the right ways. I hope so. I'm, I'm <laughs> feeling good about it. Well, congratulations on the move. I know it was a huge deal, and um, hopefully your life will be a lot less stressful moving forward. Um, what else, I guess, speaking of uh, a lack of stress, what else have you been up to recently? Um, it's one of the weird things where when we first planned this move, it was supposed to go through about two months ago. So we did not realize that we would literally move into a new house and days later go on a vacation we've had planned for a year. <laughs> um, so I went straight from... Our, our house still full of boxes, barely unpacked, to uh, a, a Caribbean cruise. My first vacations, like my first like proper, like get away from it all. No internet vacation since 2015. Um, wow. So, yeah, um, my, my, me, my wife, and members of my family all went on a cruise to um, uh, various areas in the Caribbean. Um, 
you know, plus Key West, I will say that um, Key West, despite being part of the United States, uh, was my favorite by far. What, what a cool city. What a cool place I want to go back to immediately. Ben, I know you're a Floridian. Have you been to Key West? Yes. Uh, I, I actually just went to Key West for the first time, I think it was maybe like three or four years ago or something, even though I, I spent most of my life in Florida. And um, yeah, I, I, did you get a chance to go to like uh, the Hemingway house? That seems like something you would have been into. I would have loved to. We only had a few hours. Uh, so we took the um, trolley tour around the entire island so you can see everything. Uh, and then we just I went to we went to a few bars, a few restaurants, and there is a place, uh, a a a bar called the Rum Bar. It's on the uh, very far end of the island. It's technically on like one of the more touristy streets, but on the very on the, on the quieter end of the touristy street. And there was this Eastern European expat who promised us he made the best painkillers on the island. And Ben, he made the best painkillers I've ever had. <laughs> uh, just this this. this very stoic, very straightforward um, bartender with this extremely thick. Uh, I couldn't quite pinpoint it. I, 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 I want to. I, I, if I had to guess, I would put maybe five bucks on Ukrainian accent. And um, he would. He, he just clearly knew his rum, and he's the kind of guy. In addition to making amazing drinks, this is when I realized that he was a, a, a bartender who took his craft seriously. Somebody else at the bar ordered just a rum and coke. I watched him make it. Then I watched him realize that he had poured too much rum into the rum and coke um, before, he, before he applied the coke. So he poured the excess rum out into a separate glass, poured the coke in, brought it to the guy and said, I put in too much rum. It was, was going to ruin the taste, but I brought you the extra rum in the separate glass on the house. There oh, that's cool. But here is like, it's, it's, the fact that he was taking a rum and coke seriously, like like the simplest drink in the world where if somebody another bar would have over poured, they wouldn't have given a shit. This guy did, and then like even though we didn't order anything as simple as rum and coke, we, my wife and I had more some of the more complex, I guess painkillers a little more complex. My wife had a, my wife was more adventurous. She tried some other adventurous things in the menu, and man, we were planning to go back to Key West just to go back to this bar, <laughs> the rum bar in Key West. That's awesome. When we were there, uh, I went to a place called Captain Tony's. Um, I think it's Captain Tony's Saloon is the official name, if I if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, but once you drove by, yeah, yeah, um, it. it that uh, location appeared in a Jimmy Buffett song, and my dad loves Jimmy Buffett, and I grew up listening to Jimmy Buffett because he was such a huge fan. So Jimmy Buffett was like a, a constant, um, you know, background uh, uh, presence in my life growing up. Um, so it was really cool when we went, and I, and I went with my parents. So it was cool to like go with my dad to this this bar that Jimmy Buffett sang about that we that we heard so many times growing up. So um, yeah, maybe drop by there. It was it was a pretty cool spot as well. If you <laughs> if you uh, care to to uh, venture outside of the bar, um, but uh, or the, the rum bar rather. Um, there's, there's a um, another place, Ben. And this will this will appeal to you. The uh, do you remember in the James Bond movie License to Kill where Robert Davi feeds fierce lighter to the shark. Yes. That was filmed at a restaurant in Key West. And I want to go back <laughs> to that restaurant just to see if I can find that area. Wow, man, that's, uh, that's unexpected. I, man, I wonder if, yeah, if they have like a little, um, panel or something, Robert, Robert Davi s- stepped right here. <laughs> uh, that'd be great. Okay. Um, uh, let's get into what we've been reading. What have you been reading recently, Jacob? Uh, I've been on the show for a little bit because of the move. Uh, so I've been reading quite a bit and this is a, a little uh, catch-up of some of the things that are worth um, running down. I want to recommend uh, Retail Gangster by Gary Weiss. Uh, I'm not a New Yorker, but even I was slightly aware of um, Crazy Eddie, the um, retail chain from the 80s and 90s. Ben, are, are you aware of Crazy Eddie? 
I think I've seen a couple of these commercials pop up. It must have been in movies and TV shows because there's it's a hyper local thing, right? So there's no way I would have known about it otherwise. Yeah, Crazy Eddie was this uh, very small local New York, New Jersey uh, electronic chain in the seventies to the uh, late seventies to the early nineties, and it had these incredibly bizarre, annoying commercials that were everywhere. Like I, I, I you've seen them pop up in movies, especially movies made in the eighties. You see them parodied. You like you go on YouTube and look for crazy any commercial. People compile all of them, just like a, over a decade's worth of truly deranged advertisements. But they worked. They got people in, in, into the um, stores. And I think a lot of people realized that the uh, chain failed and there was some malfeasance. But what I did not realize until I read this book was that the family that ran Crazy Eddie, uh, they were straight up criminals. Like it, this book reads like the cast of Goodfellas wandered into an episode of Succession because. <laughs> Just like the most low down, dirty, like gangster level tactics being applied to like high finance. Um, <laughs> as once they try to grow big and they realize, and they realize, oh, we'll try to use the same criminal tactics we used when we were a young small chain. Now that we're on Wall Street and we're being a publicly traded company, that'll still work, right? And then it, it's astounding how how hard they fall and just how like it, if people weren't being hurt by this it would it would be hilarious it really is it's this is retail gangster name is retail gangsters in the book it's um wow. it's very entertaining and i can it's the kind of thing i'm shocked there hasn't been an hbo miniseries about it yet okay man yeah that sounds like uh quite the recommendation uh what else have you been checking out uh waco by jeff gwynn i've mentioned jeff gwynn's podcast before he's he tends to specialize in writing about uh history of the american southwest in texas uh but also uh true crime stories and cult leaders uh like he has like the defendant books about, uh, about charles manson and jim jones and uh, i've read a lot of, his, a lot of his books and they've all been pretty incredible and waco sort of combines his two interests the, the branch davidians you know the uh christian cult who held up in waco texas uh and they're clashing with uh the atf and later the uh, fbi uh, you know, the infamous months-long standoff that led to a lot of people dying. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a famous story. It's been told and retold, you know, across various books. There have been various miniseries, including one um, just a few years ago with Taylor Kitchen and Michael Shannon playing the two leads. And this is the first book I've read personally where I feel like I truly understood the entire situation and just how tragic and awful it was on both sides. And... It does not like let the Branch Davidians off the hook. Um, the leader of that group deserves to have the full force of the law thrown at him. But also the book goes in extreme detail about just how badly the FBI and the ATF screwed the situation up. It, does, it, doesn't, let anybody, it doesn't let anybody off the hook and, and gets a really good job exploring how people were hurt and how it went wrong and why the standoff happened the way it did. So if you're interested at all in the story of the Waco standoff, the Waco siege, um, this, probably, this book feels like, feels like the definitive version of that story. Okay, so that's called Waco by Jeff Gwynn. What else? Uh, Wasteland by W. Scott Poole. This is a very interesting book. Uh, Poole is a uh, historian of, uh, of, of horror, of the horror genre. And his, his pitch for Wasteland like, is that the modern horror genre exists the way it does because of World War I. And he spends the entire book explaining this thesis in great detail. He says that, you know, the horror genre existed before, you know, 1914, you know, and uh, the Great War, as it was called then. But he says, that, you know, you look at Frankenstein, you look at Edgar Allan Poe, and it's a very, very specific type of horror writing happening. But then World War I happens, and people see violence on a scale never seen before. They see human bodies transformed 
in ways they've never seen before uh, on battlefield. Technology means that people who late who once had injuries that would have killed them are now able to survive, uh, but are forever physically changed, both um, both you know emotionally, you know physically and mentally. And the book goes in the great detail about, about the artists who emerged from World War One alive, the art they created, both you know paintings, films, uh, poems, uh, books, and explores how the violence, the, the incredible unforeseen level of violence of World War One created a new vocabulary that did not exist before that allows a modern horror genre to exist. Hmm. And I found it fascinating, Ben. Yeah, that sounds incredible. I've, I've never really made that connection before, but um, it certainly sounds like a, a compelling argument. Yeah, and it's not like, it's not gonna be like a, a book where it's like, you know, here's how... Um, World One led to your favorite 1980 slasher movie. It's, it, it is a very, very scholarly piece. It's not the kind of book you can binge read because it just kind of, kind of, it's kind of like reading a, a, a term paper at times. But it, it is utterly fascinating. And uh, Pool has a, has a follow up that just came out this year, uh, where he explores the post World War II horror movie in its connection to the Vietnam War, and and which I'm also going to, you know, I, I grab that. I'm planning to read that in the near future. Um, but yeah, I found this incredibly interesting and just. I, I, I remember how um, uh, when I interviewed Tom Savini, the legendary makeup artist, he talked about how his experience in Vietnam uh, informed how he created, you know, the makeup effects for Friday the 13th and for Maniac and for various George Romero movies and how the things he saw there um, changed him in a way that allowed him to act as a dark part of him to create exploding heads for George Romero movies. <laughs> and uh, this book is that writ large. Um, on, on like a international scale. Um, so yeah, that's Wasteland by W. Scott Poole. Excellent. And then the next thing you're going to talk about, I actually have sitting on a shelf because I received it as a Christmas present, but I've not cracked into it yet. Tell me about that one. Uh, this is The Sopranos Sessions by writers Matt Zoller-Seitz and Alan Steppenwall. Yeah, if you don't know um, Seitz, Seitz and Steppenwall, they are essentially the godfathers of modern TV criticism. They were, uh, they essentially covered The Sopranos uh, when it first hit the, uh, the, you know, HBO in 1999, they, they covered it extensively. And, you know, Steppenwall, you know, is currently the lead TV critic for Rolling Stone. Seitz has written a number of books and he pops up all over the place. Um, and there, no one, I think, in addition to being like the, the godfathers of modern TV criticism, people still ape their style and they kind of, and their style determined, you know, how people write about TV these days, even on Slash Film, I think. Um, these, this book is, is a, them going through Sopranos episode by episode, uh, doing you no know, sort of a fresh take on each episode of the show. Uh, you know, not just like you know, here's what happened in the episode, but like actual like real criticism and a breakdown of what each episode means. You know, how it works, which episodes don't work. And if you're like me and you enjoy these two by default, I I own a bunch of other books. Uh, Matt Zolsides has the definitive Mad Men book. Alan Sepulveda has a definitive Breaking Bad book, uh, uh, etc. Uh, I think is, they they jointly wrote a book called TV the Book, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. Too, TV the Book is is essential reading as well. That's it, it, that's an incredible book. But if you're even remotely a Sopranos fan and like really want to like dig deep into why that show works, like with with two of the best pop culture writers of all time as your tour guides, the Sopranos Sessions is uh, quite frankly um, one of the best books of its type I've ever read. Uh, and I've read a lot of you know books that, that focus on you know one TV show and break down episode by episode. Uh, I think it's because they're not afraid to call the show out on its bullshit when when, when its Sopranos does f- stumble, but even because they, they clearly love the show enough to have written an entire book about it, but also you know 
it's not they're not writing it like fanboys they're writing it like you know people who are who are really taking apart a complex and worthy piece of art so i recommend that one wholly if you're one of the many people who re- revisited sopranos over the pandemic and, re- and to, to remind yourself that you know as good as tv is now maybe it peaked with sopranos <laughs> <laughs> um i think one of their big claims to fame or at least alan seppenwall i don't remember if matt dollarsize if this applies to him as well but i know that seppenwall was um working for the new jersey star ledger which is the the newspaper that tony soprano picks up at the end of his driveway in a lot of the episodes it was like his local paper so um that was a you know when when they were covering the show back in the late 90s that was like where he was actually working at that time and doing that coverage so yeah, they, they, um, they both were they, they both worked for the same paper that's where you get to know each other Awesome. Um, so it's it's really it's so the back section of the book is is like reprints of a lot of their articles from the late nineties, early two thousands of them like uh, of like these twenty year old interviews and like and like articles they wrote about Sopranos since they were literally covering them on guard. That's awesome. Uh, okay, cool. So before we get into what we've been watching, let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. All right, Jake, let's get into it. What have you been watching recently? Uh, I've been watching a lot. Um, I'll be brief on The Mandalorian Season 3 since I know that uh, all the members of the podcast have broken down the recent episodes you know, in greater, greater detail. And I know, I know, Ben, you can't stand this show. You, you, <laughs> you, you, you've sworn off watching any more Mandalorian. Yeah, I tapped out after Season 1. It's just, it's just not my thing. Not my type of Star Wars. Yeah, and I, I, I got to watch it because um, as SlashFilm.com readers know, um, it is, it's a massively popular show. And the traffic that we get from our Mandalorian uh, stories suggests that you guys want to read about it. And the number of pitches they get from writers suggests that our writers want to read about it. So I want to write about it. So uh, we were doing like, you know, entire buffets of Mandalorian coverage every Wednesday. And I'm, you know, neck deep in that every every week. And hope you've been enjoying it. Uh, I will say that even though I, I stand by all of our coverage, still not my favorite Star Wars. By far, um, I don't I don't love Mandalorian, uh, especially after Andor was so refreshing, and really felt like it was things like new of Star Wars. I just feel like like Mandalorian is too simple for its own good. It, it, it exists in such a world of black and white. There's no nuance to it. It's extremely well made. And episode two of season three really has some really stunning creature effects. Like it, kind of the cyborg monster creature in the cave in episode two is legitimately a terrific monster. I really loved it. But I just feel like there's no way to say it's not sound like a jerk, but I feel like it's, it's Star Wars for, for, for kids. And I, I, well, I'm, a lot of Star Wars is Star Wars for kids, you know? So that's not it's not inherently a, a bad thing. Like, it just feels like, when I say Star Wars for kids, I, I, I said just, 
so much Star Wars feels like it's made for families. Anybody in the family can enjoy it. Whereas Mandalorian feels like it's made for kids. It's like a kid show. It, it's way, way, way too simple for its own good, I think. And I don't mean to say like, you know, I want all my Star Wars to be grim and gritty and adult because they don't. I, I, I want Star Wars to be enjoyed by everybody. I just feel like Mandalorian is way too simple and doesn't have much going on beneath the visuals and beneath a character who has a cool helmet. Yeah. Yeah. I think that like, you know, from what I saw in season one, that stripped back sort of simplicity was supposed to be, I think from the beginning anyway, um, part of the, the attraction to it, right? Like you don't necessarily have to know all this other stuff. You're, you're just following this new character and uh, you know, going on adventures and whatever. And from my understanding of sort of watching it from afar, it seems like Dave Filoni has, has sort of inserted himself in such a way where like you increasingly have to know about Star Wars Rebels and all these like animated shows that, that, you know, all these things from outside of just the experience of watching The Mandalorian in order for it to even be coherent, let alone enjoyable. So um, I kind of resent the show from afar, even though it's not impacting me directly. I just imagine somebody who wants to just sit down and watch the show. And then obviously there's that whole thing with like Book of Boba Fett, which I'm sure the guys talked about on the, the previous episodes um, where like, you know, if you didn't watch that show or a couple of those episodes of that show, you're going to be completely clueless about the start of season three of Mandalorian. So there's, there's just a lot of like uh, the approach to it that I find um, to be like not the way that that I would enjoy uh, watching a show. So I don't know. It's not for me. I guess I'll I'll just shut up now because I'm sure people who love the show are people love the show, Ben. And I I, I wish them well. Like I, the whole thing is that I sound like such a snob. I'm feeling like I'm running on people's parade. And I, and I hate that because I'm glad people like the show. And if the success of the Mandalorian means that Lucasfilm will be willing to take more risks like Andor, then you know, please, please, please make more Baby Yoda. Let Baby Yoda show produce the gifts. The money, the, the money printing gifts it needs to fund Andor season. Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. I, I can't hate it that much because it led to something like it, it, it props up Lucasfilm enough to be able for them to be able to take a risk on something like Andor, exactly like you said. So, um, all right, so that's the Mandalorian season three. It's currently streaming on Disney Plus. It's rolling out week to week. Uh, what else have you been watching recently, Jacob? Uh, have you heard of or have you watched um, Physical One Hundred on Netflix? I've heard of it. I've not seen it yet. It is a uh, South Korean reality show where 100 athletes are gathered to do uh, five, lack of a better term, Squid Game-esque competitions. Uh, the, the aesthetic of the show is, is Squid Game, straight up. It, it borrows from that show in terms of like you know the mystery and the um, strange, locked-away nature of it. But it is, um, it's closer to Great British Baking Show than anything else because these 100 athletes... They're very respectful to each other. They get along. They're complimentary. Even when the community gets you know, whoever wins, like, gives the other person you know, a big hug and they leave all smiles. And it's very, very uplifting. And uh, very, very... I imagine the American version of Physical 100 would just be a bunch of, like, raging douchebags. Whereas, <laughs> I don't know if it's cultural or if it's a creative choice and the show's part to edit it this way. But, like, each episode of Physical 100 left me feeling really good about the world and really good about these, like extraordinarily fit people who just want to compete and, and love each other and are happy for each other's success. And um, it's incredibly entertaining. Uh, I, the one issue is that there's so much happening so quickly, like in, in reality show fashion, you know, there are faster cuts. There's a hundred characters that even with, you know, even if you're a fast subtitle reader, it can be a little overwhelming at times. Uh, just because there's so much happening. And, that, and sometimes the show itself has to be picky about what it subtitles because there's, 
text on the screen while people are talking, you know, while this is happening and the show has to like, sometimes I feel like I'm missing a little bit of information just because it can't subtitle 18 things at once. Um, but that said, with the 100, I watched it in like two or three sit- sittings. Uh, I found it, I found the challenges to be incredibly exciting. And I, I love how it's not just, you know, 100 athletes from one background. Like there are um, fitness models against bodybuilders, against snowboarders, against ice climbers, against joggers, against a car dealer, um, a, a, car, a car salesman who just works out in his spare time versus a prison guard who works out in his spare time uh, versus, you know, Olympians. Uh, there's even a, um, a, a, an Olympian loser on the show, a South Korean like uh, uh, loser, who is um, everybody's everybody's terrified of him. He's, he's apparently like his reputation precedes him in the South Korean fitness scene as being like the the, the strongest man in the entire country. Uh, so it's it's just really really fun and 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 surprising to see which you know backgrounds work out. And I was uh, I was really really excited to see you know some of the matchups they had so physical 100 is extremely fun and as long as you understand that you're not gonna be able to follow it 100 percent of the time just because of the nature of reality tv plus subtitles uh it really is a show that you can watch in like two sittings and like not be able to stop excellent all right so that's physical 100 on netflix right now uh you've also been catching up with star trek picard season three yes we've been running a lot of star trek picard season three coverage on the site i hope people have been enjoying it because i've been I'm really liking this season. I was really, really hit and miss in season one and two, uh, both of which I think started strong and then petered out in a pretty hardcore way. I can say I've seen the first six episodes of season three, uh, and I can say that the first six, six episodes of this episode season are all really strong. And it feels in many ways like what the show should have been all along. It's it's not just a Picard show as, as they lean heavily on the marketing. It's most of the Next Generation cast is back. Jonathan Frakes is essentially the co-lead of the season. Uh, but also the new characters are great. There's a character named Captain Shaw, who's just the, um, he's an extremely bitter, crotchety, sarcastic, um, like captain of the USS Titan who just wants to do his job. He doesn't want Picard on a ship. Why is this old guy here trying to throw him into an adventure? He just wants to do patrols. He just wants to do patrols in science. Why, why, why is he suddenly having to save the galaxy? <laughs> and, uh, captain Shaw is a big mood and I'm really hoping that. Uh, the season lets him uh, lets him have a spinoff at some point because I was, um, uh, you know, everybody comes from Picard. Everybody's here for the Next Generation crew. I really, really love what they're doing with, with the returning characters. Uh, but Ben, uh, I'm not sure how much you've been privy to uh, slash some love affair Captain Shaw yet, but Captain Shaw is my favorite new Star Trek character in quite some time. <laughs> that's amazing. Okay, so that's on uh, Paramount Plus, right? Yeah, episode four just dropped uh, today as we're recording this. Uh, it's a good one. Uh, if you are skeptical about Picard after season one and two, or if you're just a Next Generation fan, you can, other than a handful of references to season one and two, like literally just one or two, um, like moments here and there, if you're a Next Generation fan, uh, you can jump into season three without much issue. This is very much... Uh, Star Trek Nemesis, the 2002 film, dropped the ball so hard on Next Generation, didn't give them a proper send-off, and it was and it's, you know famously... An embarrassing flop for fans and for Paramount. It's a, it remains the only Star Trek movie to ever lose money. And Picard season three feels like the cinematic send off that Nemesis should have been. It is. It's nostalgic for sure, but it's nostalgic because it knows it's saying goodbye and it has to make up for the sins of Nemesis. And I am, I'm, I think that it's doing the absolute best job it possibly can with with a, with a nostalgia run. You know, something I'm inherently skeptical about. I'm skeptical about things that are made for nostalgia. But Picard Season 3 has been 
subversive and emotional and really really taking care of these characters in a way that the last next generation film did not so if you're skeptical i'd say you still give it a shot that's awesome it sounds like uh they're yeah that's really cool that they're able to um sort of correct the sins of the past in a way it sounds like so um, sounds like something that, that fans will really enjoy as well. Um, all right. I, I spoke actually on Tuesday about uh, Creed 3 a little bit. What did you think about Creed 3? You saw this too. Yeah, I'll be brief. Uh, Creed 3 is terrific. I like it as much as Creed 1, which means it's automatically like in the top four Rocky movies maybe. Um, mm-hmm. Like, you know, it's, for me, it's really Rocky 1, Creed, and Creed 3 maybe. I, 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 I'm, I'm really kind of, a, I, I think that every Rocky movie is entertaining. Uh, and, and Creed 2 is also totally fine. Uh, but I think that Creed 3 belongs in the upper echelon of these movies, which is nothing I, I imagined. And I think that Michael B. Jordan directs the hell of it. And Jonathan Majors, holy crap, what an exciting actor. I, yeah. I, I, I'll talk about Ant-Man 3 in a second. But the fact that, this, that it, there was a time when an actor who looked like Jonathan Majors would have been typecast and pigeonholed into playing heavies in action movies. And yet, he were... I'm thankful we live in an era where Jonathan Majors is able to play Kang and his Creed three character and Lovecraft country and the upcoming, you know, the Sundance movie magazine dreams. He has such incredible range. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think it's, in, I think it's incredible that he's able, that the roles now exist for him to be able to play the roles that he does. I think he's yeah. an outstanding actor. Yeah, a hundred percent. And and I encourage people to go back and watch The Harder They Fall on Netflix if you missed that one, the the Western um, that he led the cast for, which he's great in that too. And then The Last Black Man in San Francisco is the movie that really put a lot of people put him on a lot of people's radar. And the performances in those movies are so, so different all across the board from what he's doing in Creed Three and Ant Man. And and those two movies are are super different as well. So yeah, I'm I'm thrilled that we're like you know, living in the Jonathan Majors era right now. And I'm excited to see what he does next for sure. Uh, speaking of John, Jonathan Majors, uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. Uh Ben, I am one of the three people online who like Ant-Man 3. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's hard for me to hate that movie. Um, I, I have honestly, like, admittedly have not thought about it very much since I saw it. But I walked out going like, okay, that, that wasn't too bad. Like, it was better than, I enjoyed it more personally than... Uh, than Doctor Strange 2 and uh, and Thor 4. So, uh, again, that's a low bar, but um, I appreciated the, the swings that it was doing. It certainly has a ton of flaws, um, but uh, I, I think I, I came away like more uh, warm to the movie, certainly, than the, the, a lot of the internet seems to be. So I'm, I'm glad that you enjoyed it as well, Jacob. Yeah, uh, MODOK good, Ben. <laughs> yeah i mean brad and i talked about that in our big spoiler thing like there's no way that they could have done modok any other way conceptually um just visually i don't know maybe there is a way that they could have done it differently on, on a visual level but um what did you think I, I, it sounds like conceptually you you liked it did you did you um uh i don't know bump up against the visuals of that at all or were you totally fine with that i was on vacation when ant-man 3 came out which is why i, I saw it much later and I came home to my Twitter feed full of screenshots of Corey Solis Modoc. And on paper on Twitter, it looks awful. I was like, oh my God, what is this? But in, an ex- in execution, it seemed like he was played as a comedy character. It seemed that it was played as just the 
pettiest, weirdest, most bizarre character imaginable, as opposed to taking even remotely seriously. I think 100% works. I think that people have a very, very bad habit, with Marvel movies especially. Remember happened with Black Widow when that movie hit, you know, premium, you know, Disney Plus streaming before it, you know, it went to had like limited theater theater release. Or did it even, did it even have limited theater release or was it just <sighs> Yeah, I don't remember now. <laughs> it was just streaming. That's why Scott Scar- Scar- Johansson sued. But remember people were taking like moments out of context and putting them on Twitter for, for the likes and the retweets. And even if you think, even if the visual effect moment is bad, or even if you think like this delivery is weird, doing that with any movie, I think it's super shitty. Um, yeah. Not take a moment out of context, put on Twitter just because they're like, oh, but look how crappy this is, uh, just because it's going to get you some likes. People did it with Thor four as well, a movie I don't like, um, but also I think is, but also I think it was unfair. And I think the anti Modoc thing was fueled by people seeing you know Modoc out of context, straight up. And yeah. I, think, I think that's awful. But I will say that. Um, I think that Kang here, much again, Jonathan Majors, you know, not the most complex Marvel villain, not the, you know, heaviest, you know, or most well-written character. I think Thanos, for example, is a better written character. I think that, uh, I don't like Thor 4 very much, but I think that Gore, the Gore the God Butcher, played by Christian Bale's character, is a more nuanced, interesting villain in that movie. Mm-hmm. But Jonathan Majors is so good that I was, like, compelled by Kang by default. There's a moment that without spoiling anything uh, in a flashback where one character learns something about Kang and you see Kang realize this person has learned this about him and you see the gears turning, you see a plan forming in his head and watching Jonathan Majors act that out with no words as you see like in his eyes and in his face, like formulating a plan as to what to say next. I was watching him going, man, this is like, with no dialogue, he has made a thin Marvel villain into somebody who I can't take my eyes off of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hundred percent agree with that. I, I, I wish that the Kang character is a little bit more, uh, better defined in terms of like what he is and isn't able to do. His power set, you know, his his uh, relationship with time and all that stuff. I feel like there were some missed opportunities there. But yeah, I mean, hundred percent, John Jonathan Majors just like made a character who on the page was uh, was two dimensional into a three dimensional person. So. Um, yeah, great stuff. Um, any other closing thoughts on Ant Man three, Jacob? Um, it should have been called Ant Man Quantumania because the wasp she wore in there to the point where like, why is she even in this movie? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she really did not have much to do at all. Um, okay, so I'll get into three things that I watched uh, last night. I went to AMC theaters and watched Casablanca for the first time on the big screen. I mean, I've, I've seen the movie before, but for the first time in a theater, and uh, it was a great experience um, for the most part. There were there were a couple weird uh, presentation things. Um, the movie looked more blue and white than black and white. And my wife said that she saw that, uh, that there was like a, a new remaster or something done for this version. Um, so maybe that had something to do with it. I personally would probably guess that it was more likely something wrong with whatever was going on with the projection at, at AMC than, you know, Warner brothers making a mistake with the, the color grading or whatever. Um, but I don't know. I've, I've seen screenshots on on Twitter and things of uh, a lot of like 4K versus Blu-ray stuff, and like how sometimes in those transfers the colors and just get completely screwed up along the way somewhere. I'm not uh, technically proficient enough to be able to understand exactly that process of how that happens. Um, but I just thought it was it was worth mentioning. But um, man, what a great movie, Jacob Casablanca! Like, holy shit! The, there are so many incredible lines. Controversial thing to say. Casablanca be a good movie. <laughs> I know, but like, and, and it's, it's so, um, 
like I, it, it just really goes without saying, but like, this is a movie that I'm guessing a lot of our listeners have not seen. Um, just because it's one of those old movies, right? But like, it's so good. It holds up so incredibly well. And there are so many moments and settings and lines and and sort of character types that you can you can feel that this is the rock that was thrown into the ocean or, or lake of cinema and the ripple effects are still trickling out from, from this movie. Like the uh, Rick's uh, bar, basically, the, the, the establishment that Humphrey Bogart's character runs is basically like the the um, uh, whatever you want to call it the the place in Star Wars from from the original movie the uh, Mos Eisley Cantina right where mm-hmm. like the the um, architecture is very similar and like the idea that there are all these uh, sort of shady characters doing you know un, unseemly uh, double dealings and backroom stuff and like these sort of like you know. Uh, these criminal elements and, and underworld people and stuff like operating, operating within this, uh, this space and this environment. It's very clear to me that George Lucas was influenced by this movie. And the same, same thing goes for like a uh, Rage of the Lost Ark. Like there's a, a scene in the beginning of this movie that takes place in like a, a marketplace that looks just like, you know, uh, what Harrison Ford is, is running through in that, um, in that sequence and in, in Raiders. So it's, it's, you know, if you want to go back to the beginning, like in addition to just the movie being a really perfect piece of cinema and like holding up in all these great ways, I think if you want to, if you're interested in the origins of how, you know, some of the most popular movies of all time got made, go back and watch Casablanca because you can see a lot of the the DNA certainly uh, living in there. So um, just a great, great movie. And I'm really glad that we had the chance to watch it. Uh, on a big screen that the sound was really, really good. I, I got a little worried when we, when it first started, because I was like, Oh man, there aren't any subtitles on this. And like, we always watch movies with subtitles at home now. Um, and I was like, am I going to be able to understand what, what these characters are saying? And aside from like a few very, very harsh accents, everything was like super clear and the movie looks incredible. So um, if you ever have a chance to check out Casablanca on the big screen, definitely do that. If you don't uh, have it, you know, playing anywhere near you, it's on HBO Max right now, so just fire it up. Like, give this thing a shot. It's it's really a terrific movie. Yeah, I, saw the, I saw the 4K Blu-ray when I was shopping the other day. Maybe pull the trigger on that one. Yeah, man. Uh, that yeah, that sounds like a, a worthy purchase for sure. Um, all, these, all these old movies shot in 35 millimeter film uh, look better in 4K than anything shot today. It's, it's yeah. wild. Yeah. Uh, I also watched Cat on a Hot Tin Roof for the first time. Have you ever seen this, Jacob? Uh, no, I have not. In, in fact, I can tell you right now, it's probably the most famous title for something that I don't know anything about. So I'm gonna- Yeah, I didn't know anything about it either. And um, the reason that I, I finally uh, sort of uh, crossed it off my watch list is because um, the Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward uh, documentary series, uh, The Last Movie Stars that Ethan Hawke put together for HBO Max, my wife and I started watching that. And we, I think we got one, maybe two episodes into it. And we were just like, okay, we actually need to watch more Paul Newman, Joanne Woodward stuff before we watch this, because there are so many clips and uh, stories being told about those actors' incredible careers. And we just didn't have the context for it because we've seen you know a handful of movies from both of them, but not nearly enough. So this one had been on my watch list for a long time and uh, we watch it and it's it's really really good i mean it's based on a stage play by tennessee williams um another person that i don't know a ton about and i I did did not go to you know i didn't really take very many drama classes or like uh the history of of the american stage or any classes like that growing up so i don't know a ton about tennessee williams and and his life and and 
works really, but he, I know that he won the Pulitzer Prize for this. And uh, this movie is really, really good. It, it's basically like um, what I want to see now, which is like stories with super small stakes about um, adults and like a, adult things. And it's not tied to anything. And it's uh, it's just like incredible performances, actors like throwing 100 miles an hour going at each other. So um yeah, I encourage people to check this out if you can. Uh, I wanted to say that I I was shocked to discover that Burl Ives plays a huge role in this. And I only knew Burl Ives as the voice of the narrator from the uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer um, like stop motion Christmas special in the 1960s. And like the the songs that he sang on that soundtrack that, that still, you know, permeate the holiday season every year. Um, I, I knew that he was an actor, but I had never seen him in anything. And I don't think, uh, but he plays a, a major role in this movie and he was very good. Like everybody's very good. The, the um, Paul Newman it plays a sort of a broken down man who is a, a former athlete who is like a shell of his former self. And Elizabeth Taylor plays his wife and she's like unreal in this movie. And during the Turner classic movies intro, um, like right before the movie came on, uh, one of the hosts was saying that Elizabeth Taylor's husband died in an accident, like a few weeks into this production. And she took some time off, like three weeks off and the movie shot around her, but she came back and, and finished making this movie during the midst of this incredibly tumultuous, like, uh, you know, unimaginable tragedy in her life. And she got an Oscar nomination for this. And when she first comes on screen, she's doing a really deep Southern accent because the movie takes place, I think in, I want to say like Mississippi or, or somewhere in the deep South. And I was like, Oh no, uh Oh, uh, super, super Southern accent. That's a little bit of a red flag for me. Cause it's, it's so hard for actors to nail that and do it right. But like five or 10 minutes in, you just like completely forget about that. And it really um, settles in, in a great way across the board. It's, it's not just uh, Taylor's accent, Paul Newman's doing an accent like everybody. Um, but it just becomes part of the the fabric of this movie. And uh, yeah, cat on hot tin roof. Great stuff. Another hot take from old Ben there, but um, yeah, very, very good. Like you said, a big blind spot for me. So I'll, I'll rectify this now. Yes. And then I just wanted to mention that I finished the second season of Dark, the Netflix show. Have you seen this show, Jacob? I don't think we've talked about this. No, it's been on my, you know, should I watch, should I, should I watch Dark? Should I start Dark List uh, for, for, uh, for some time? And then I always, I always go, no, I'm going to watch another episode of The Amazing Race instead. That's been <laughs> my past year, Ben, is yeah. stress plus putting aside things that may require even a slice enough effort because I'm too stressed out to enjoy something that's complex. Well, that's that's a good point that you raise because it does actually require some effort. Um, we're watching it in, it's a German show on Netflix and we're watching it in the German language um, and then with English subtitles. And uh, this is an incredibly um, uh, intricate show in terms of the characters and their relationships and the timeline and all of that going on. And I described it a little bit as like Lost meets Twin Peaks meets uh, Stephen King's It. And um, I'm trying to remember there was one other like real big sort of uh, touch point in there. But anyway, it's it's a it's a, a sort of smashing together of a lot of those ideas uh, and then throw time travel into the mix. And that's like what undergirds the whole thing. And I really liked the first season. I thought it was sort of there was sort of like mind blowing stuff in there. Season two uh, was I think just as good, like the, the, um, you know, the intricacies continue to pile up and the, the stakes are slowly raised and the season two finale is 
phenomenal. So I'll just say that I, I was extremely pleased with where this goes. And uh, I'm very, very, the second season finale makes me very excited to finish the show with its third season. So um, I also want to give a shout out to uh, a listener named Neil, who DM'd me on Twitter and said, hey, I just caught up with you know the previous Slash Film Daily episode where you were talking about Dark. And I had mentioned on that episode that I was having some trouble tracking all of the um, relationships between these characters, partially because of the German language uh, nature of it, but partially just because of the, the intricacies of the plot. And Neil basically sent me this link and said, like, Netflix and the Dark Showrunners created this interactive guide website where it maps out all of the relationships of the characters and tracks what they've been doing and what they've been involved in. And the, the coolest part of it is that you can filter the guide to the exact episode that you're on so you can avoid spoilers because this is a show that that is definitely spoil spoilable because of all of the the twists and turns that it takes and i just thought it was a really really cool thing and i'd never seen this website before um that is like an official thing that is is run by netflix and the the people who created the show so uh, i'm going to link to that in the show notes and and help uh you know neil pay it forward uh to to all of our listeners who may be watching the show uh for the first time as well so um that is season two of dark it's streaming on netflix right now i'm very excited to dive into the final season uh yeah jacob what, what do you think what, what's your um your personal watch list looking like these days i know you said you're you're um you know the past year has been a little rough and, and a little stressful but now that you're in your new house are you like uh, getting into the headspace of like, okay, I can I can embrace um, you know some things that are actually going to require a little bit more brain power for me now. I hope to. Uh, I, I have South by Southwest starring tomorrow, uh, so I have to worry about that first. But um, uh, when that's over, you know, I'm hoping to you know, my wife and I are both hopefully trying to do a thing where each of us either pick one movie the other has to watch that week. You know, it's in like you know, I on Tuesdays you watch her pick, on Thursdays you watch we watch my pick and. Whatever we pick, the other one has to, we watch together. So I'm kind of oh, hoping to in the flow of you know, like watching stuff and not just. Man, we're on season 26 of the Amazing Race. We started <laughs> season one. So, um, but yeah, uh, but South by Southwest has to finish first. So I will say, yeah. that, um, from South by Southwest, we'll watch slash film for you know coverage of Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, uh, Evil Dead Rise. They haven't formally announced it yet, but John Wick Chapter 4. Um, Flamin' Hot, the Cheetos movie, Ben. I'm seeing that mm-hmm. uh, this weekend. Um, Mrs. Davis, the new Damon Lindelof show. Uh, you know, just a, a lot of stuff uh, from me and, and a handful of other slash film folks, uh, and as well as a lot of interviews are in the works. Uh, so when Southwest Southwest is over, Ben, hopefully I'll be back to watching things that require some actual concentration on my part. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, yeah, I recommend adding Dark to to your list. Uh, and yes, as Jacob said, definitely stay tuned to Slash Film uh, over this weekend and then for the next uh, week or so for uh, all of our uh, South by Southwest coverage because there's going to be a ton of it. So I think that's going to do it for today's episode. Uh, you can find more about a lot of the stuff that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com and linked inside the show notes for this episode. Slash Film Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. You can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter. There's a link for you to do that in the show notes as well. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at slashhome.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. That helps us out a lot. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow.